Section 10 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 10. I crept out of the kitchen and upstairs, trembling all over. I could have prayed then for the instant dismissal of Francoise. But who would have baked me such hot rolls, boiled me such fragrant coffee, and even roasted me such chickens? And, as it happened, everyone else had already had to make the same cowardly reckoning. For my Aunt Leonie knew though I was still in ignorance of this, that Francoise, who, for her own daughter or for her nephews, would have given her life without a murmur, showed a singular implacability in her dealings with the rest of the world. In spite of which, my aunt still retained her, for, while conscious of her cruelty, she could appreciate her services. I began gradually to realise that Francoise's kindness her compunction, the sum total of her virtues, concealed many of these back-kitchen tragedies, just as history reveals to us that the reigns of the kings and queens who are portrayed as kneeling with clasped hands in the windows of churches were stained by oppression and bloodshed. I had taken note of the fact that, apart from her own kinsfolk, the sufferings of humanity inspired in her a pity which increased in direct ratio to the distance separating the sufferers from herself. The tears which flowed from her in torrents, when she read of the misfortunes of persons unknown to her, in a newspaper, were quickly stemmed once she had been able to form a more accurate mental picture of the victims. One night, shortly after her confinement, the kitchen-maid was seized with the most appalling pains. Mamma heard her groans, and rose and awakened Francoise, who, quite unmoved, declared that all the outcry was mere malingering, that the girl wanted to play the mistress in the house. The doctor, who had been afraid of some such attack, had left a marker in a medical dictionary which we had, at the page on which the symptoms were described, and had told us to turn up this passage, where we would find the measures of first aid to be adopted. My mother sent Francoise to fetch the book, warning her not to let the marker drop out. An hour elapsed, and Francoise had not returned. My mother, supposing that she had gone back to bed, grew vexed, and told me to go myself to the bookcase and fetch the volume. I did so, and there found Francoise, who, in her curiosity to know what the marker indicated, had begun to read the clinical account of these after-paints, and was violently sobbing, now that it was a question of a type of illness with which she was not familiar. At each painful symptom mentioned by the writer, she would exclaim, Oh, oh, holy virgin, is it possible that God wishes any wretched human creature to suffer so? Oh, the poor girl! But when I had called her, and she had returned to the bedside of Giotto's charity, her tears at once ceased to flow, 
she could find no stimulus for that pleasant sensation of tenderness and pity, which she very well knew, having been moved to it often enough by the perusal of newspapers, nor any other pleasure of the same kind, in her sense of weariness and irritation at being pulled out of bed in the middle of the night for the kitchen-maid, so that at the sight of those very sufferings, the printed account of which had moved her to tears, she had nothing to offer but ill-tempered mutterings, mingled with bitter sarcasm, saying, when she thought that we had gone out of earshot, well, she need never have done what she must have done to bring all this about. She found that pleasant enough, I dare say. She had better not put on any airs now. All the same, he must have been a godforsaken young man to go after that. Dear, dear, it's just as they used to say in my poor mother's country. Snaps and snails and puppy-dogs' tails and dirty sluts in plenty smell sweeter than roses in young men's noses when the heart is one and twenty. Although, when her grandson had a slight cold in his head, she would set off at night, even if she were ill also, instead of going to bed, to see whether he had everything that he wanted, covering ten miles on foot before daybreak, so as to be in time to begin her work, this same love for her own people, and her desire to establish the future greatness of her house on a solid foundation, reacted, in her policy with regard to the other servants, in one unvarying maxim, which was never to let any of them set foot in my aunt's room. Indeed, she showed a sort of pride in not allowing any one else to come near my aunt, preferring when she herself was ill, to get out of bed and to administer the Vichy water in person, rather than to concede to the kitchen-maid the right of entry into her mistress's presence. There is a species of Hymenoptera, observed by Fabre, the burrowing wasp, which, in order to provide a supply of fresh meat for her offspring after her own decease, calls in the science of anatomy to amplify the resources of her instinctive cruelty, and, having made a collection of weevils and spiders, proceeds with marvellous knowledge and skill to pierce the nerve centre on which their power of locomotion, but none of their other vital functions, depends, so that the paralysed insect, beside which her egg is laid, will furnish the larva, when it is hatched, with a tamed and inoffensive quarry, incapable either of flight or of resistance, but perfectly fresh for the larder. In the same way, Françoise had adopted, to minister to her permanent and unfaltering resolution to render the house uninhabitable to any other servant, a series of crafty and pitiless stratagems, Many years later we discovered that, if we had been fed on asparagus day after day throughout that whole season, it was because the smell of the plants gave the poor kitchen-maid, who had to prepare them, such violent attacks of asthma, that she was finally obliged to leave my aunt's service. Alas, we had definitely to alter our opinion of Monsieur Le Grandin. On one of the Sundays following our meeting with him on the Pont-Vieux, after which my father had been forced to confess himself mistaken, as mass drew to an end, 
and, with the sunshine and the noise of the outer world, something else invaded the church, an atmosphere so far from sacred that Madame Goupil, Madame Perspier, everyone, in fact, who a moment ago, when I arrived a little late, had been sitting motionless, their eyes fixed on their prayer-books, who, I might even have thought, had not seen me come in, had not their feet moved slightly to push away the little kneeling-desk which was preventing me from getting to my chair, began in loud voices to discuss with us all manner of utterly mundane topics, as though we were already outside in the square. We saw, standing on the sun-baked steps of the porch, dominating the many-coloured tumult of the market, Le Grandin himself, whom the husband of the lady we had seen with him, on the previous occasion, was just going to introduce to the wife of another large landed proprietor of the district. Le Grandin's face showed an extraordinary zeal and animation. He made a profound bow, with a subsidiary backward movement, which brought his spine sharply up into a position behind its starting point a gesture in which he must have been trained by the husband of his sister, Madame de Combremer. This rapid recovery caused a sort of tense muscular wave to ripple over Le Grandin's hips, which I had not supposed to be so fleshy. I cannot say why, but this undulation of pure matter, this wholly carnal fluency, with not the least hint in it of spiritual significance, this wave lashed to a fury by the wind of an assiduity, an obsequiousness of the basest sort, awoke my mind suddenly to the possibility of a Le Grandin altogether different from the one whom we knew. The lady gave him some message for her coachman, and while he was stepping down to her carriage, the impression of joy, timid and devout, which the introduction had stamped there, still lingered on his face. Carried away in a sort of dream, he smiled. Then he began to hurry back towards the lady. He was walking faster than usual, and his shoulders swayed backwards and forwards, right and left, in the most absurd fashion. Altogether he looked, so utterly had he abandoned himself to it, ignoring all other considerations, as though he were the lifeless and wire-pulled puppet of his own happiness. Meanwhile, we were coming out through the porch. We were passing close beside him. He was too well-bred to turn his head away. But he fixed his eyes, which had suddenly changed to those of a seer, lost in the profundity of his vision, on so distant a point of the horizon, that he could not see us, and so had not to acknowledge our presence. His face emerged, still with an air of innocence, from his straight and pliant coat, which looked as though conscious of having been led astray, in spite of itself, and plunged into surroundings of a detested splendour. And a spotted necktie, stirred by the breezes of the square, continued to float in front of Le Grandin, like the standard of his proud isolation, of his noble independence. Just as we reached the house, my mother discovered that we had forgotten the Saint Honoré, and asked my father to go back with me and tell them to send it up at once. Near the church, we met Le Grandin, coming towards us with the same lady, whom he was escorting to her carriage. He brushed past us, and did not interrupt what he was saying to her, 
but gave us, out of the corner of his blue eye, a little sign, which began and ended, so to speak, inside his eyelids, and as it did not involve the least movement of his facial muscles, managed to pass quite unperceived by the lady. But, striving to compensate by the intensity of his feelings for the somewhat restricted field in which they had to find expression, he made that blue chink, which was set apart for us, sparkle with all the animation of cordiality, which went far beyond mere playfulness, and almost touched the borderline of roguery. He subtilized the refinements of good fellowship into a wink of connivance, a hint, a hidden meaning, a secret understanding, all the mysteries of complicity in a plot, and finally exalted his assurances of friendship to the level of protestations of affection, even of a declaration of love, lighting up for us, and for us alone, with a secret and languid flame, invisible by the great lady upon his other side, an enamoured pupil in a countenance of ice. Only the day before, he had asked my parents to send me to dine with him on this same Sunday evening. Come and bear your aged friend company, he had said to me, like the nosegay which a traveller sends us from some land to which we shall never go again. Come and let me breathe from the far country of your adolescence, the scent of those flowers of spring among which I also used to wander many years ago. Come with the primrose, with the cannon's beard, with the gold cup. Come with the stone crop, whereof are posies made, pledges of love in the Balzacian flora. Come with that flower of the resurrection morning, the Easter daisy. Come with the snowballs of the Gelda rose, which begin to embalm with their fragrance the alleys of your great aunt's garden, ere the last snows of Lent are melted from its soil. Come with the glorious silken raiment of the lily, apparel fit for Solomon, and with the many-coloured enamel of the pansies. But come, above all, with the spring breeze, still cooled by the last frosts of winter, wafting apart for the two butterflies' sake that have waited outside all morning the closed portals of the first Jerusalem rose. The question was raised at home, whether, all things considered, I ought still to be sent to dine with Monsieur Le Grandin. But my grandmother refused to believe that he could have been impolite. You admit yourself that he appears at church there, quite simply dressed and all that. He hardly looks like a man of fashion. She added that, in any event, even if at the worst, he had been intentionally rude, it was far better for us to pretend that we had noticed nothing. And indeed, my father himself, though more annoyed than any of us by the attitude which Le Grandin had adopted, may still have held in reserve a final uncertainty as to its true meaning. It was like every attitude or action which reveals a man's deep and hidden character. They bear no relation to what he has previously said, and we cannot confirm our suspicions by the culprit's evidence for he will admit nothing. We are reduced to the evidence of our own senses, and we ask ourselves, in the face of this detached and incoherent fragment of recollection, 
whether indeed our senses have not been the victims of a hallucination, with the result that such attitudes, and these alone are of importance in indicating character, are the most apt to leave us in perplexity. I dined with Le Grandin on the terrace of his house by moonlight. There is a charming quality, is there not, he said to me, in this silence, for hearts that are wounded, as mine is, a novelist whom you will read in time to come claims that there is no remedy but silence and shadow. And see you this, my boy, there comes in all lives a time towards which you still have far to go, when the weary eyes can endure but one kind of light, the light which a fine evening like this prepares for us in the still room of darkness, when the ears can listen to no music save what the moonlight breathes through the flute of silence. I could hear what Monsieur Legrandin was saying. Like everything that he said, it sounded attractive. But I was disturbed by the memory of a lady whom I had seen recently for the first time, and thinking, now that I knew that Legrandin was on friendly terms with several of the local aristocracy, that perhaps she also was among his acquaintance, I summoned up all my courage and said to him, Tell me, sir, do you by any chance know the lady, the ladies of Guermantes? And I felt glad, because, in pronouncing the name, I had secured a sort of power over it, by the mere act of drawing it up out of my dreams, and giving it an objective existence in the world of spoken things. But, at the sound of the word Guermantes, I saw in the middle of each of our friend's blue eyes a little brown dimple appear, as though they had been stabbed by some invisible pinpoint, while the rest of his pupils, reacting from the shock, received and secreted the azure overflow. His fringed eyelids darkened and drooped. His mouth, which had been stiffened and seared with bitter lines, was the first to recover, and smiled, while his eyes still seemed full of pain, like the eyes of a good-looking martyr, whose body bristles with arrows. No, I do not know them, he said. But instead of uttering so simple a piece of information, a reply in which there was so little that could astonish me, in the natural and conversational tone which would have befitted it, he recited it, with a separate stress upon each word, leaning forward, bowing his head, with at once the vehemence which a man gives, so as to be believed, to a highly improbable statement, as though the fact that he did not know the Guermont could be due only to some strange accident of fortune, and with the emphasis of a man who, finding himself unable to keep silence about what is to him a painful situation, chooses to proclaim it aloud, so as to convince his hearers that the confession he is making is one that causes him no embarrassment, but is easy, agreeable, spontaneous, that the situation in question, in this case the absence of relations with the Guermont family, might very well have been, not forced upon, but actually designed by Le Grandin himself, might arise from some family tradition, some moral principle or mystical vow, which expressly forbade his seeking their society. No, 
he resumed, explaining by his words the tone in which they were uttered. No, I do not know them. I have never wished to know them. I have always made a point of preserving complete independence. At heart, as you know, I am a bit of a radical. People are always coming to me about it, telling me I am mistaken in not going to Germont, that I make myself seem ill-bred, uncivilised, an old bear. But that's not the sort of reputation that can frighten me. It's too true. In my heart of hearts, I care for nothing in the world now, but a few churches, books, two or three, pictures, rather more, perhaps, and the light of the moon, when the fresh breeze of youth, such as yours, wafts to my nostrils the scent of gardens whose flowers my old eyes are not sharp enough now to distinguish. I did not understand very clearly why, in order to refrain from going to the houses of people whom one did not know, it should be necessary to cling to one's independence, nor how that could give one the appearance of a savage or a bear. But what I did understand was this, that Le Grandin was not altogether truthful when he said that he cared only for churches, moonlight, and youth. He cared also, he cared a very great deal, for people who lived in country houses and would be so much afraid, when in their company, of incurring their displeasure, that he would never dare to let them see that he numbered, as well, among his friends middle-class people, the families of solicitors and stockbrokers, preferring, if the truth must be known, that it should be revealed in his absence, when he was out of earshot, that judgment should go against him, if so it must, by default. In a word, he was a snob. Of course, he would never have admitted all or any of this in the poetical language which my family and I so much admired. And if I asked him, Do you know the Gamont family? Le Grand and the talker would reply, No, I have never cared to know them. But unfortunately, the talker was now subordinated to another Le Grandin, whom he kept carefully hidden in his breast, whom he would never consciously exhibit because this other could tell stories about our own Le Grandin, and about his snobbishness, which would have ruined his reputation for ever. And this other Le Grandin had replied to me already in that wounded look, that stiffened smile, the undue gravity of his tone in uttering those few words, in the thousand arrows by which our own Le Grandin had instantaneously been stabbed and sickened, like a Saint Sebastian of snobbery. Oh, how you hurt me! No, I do not know the Gamont family. Do not remind me of the great sorrow of my life. And since this other, this irrepressible, dominant, despotic Le Grandin, if he lacked our Le Grandin's charming vocabulary, showed an infinitely greater promptness in expressing himself, by means of what are called reflexes. It followed that, when Legrand and the talker attempted to silence him, he would already have spoken, and it would be useless for our friend to deplore the bad impression which the revelations of his alter ego must have caused, since he could do no more now than endeavour to mitigate them. This was not to say that M. Legrandin was anything but sincere when he inveighed against snobs, he could not, 
from his own knowledge at least, be aware that he was one also, since it is only with the passions of others that we are ever really familiar, and what we come to find out about our own can be no more than what other people have shown us. Upon ourselves they react, but indirectly, through our imagination which substitutes for our actual primary motives other secondary motives, less dark and therefore more decent. Never had Legrandin's snobbishness impelled him to make a habit of visiting a duchess as such. Instead, it would set his imagination to make that duchess appear, in Legrandin's eyes, endowed with all the graces. He would be drawn towards the duchess, assuring himself the while that he was yielding to the attractions of her mind and her other virtues which the vile race of snobs could never understand. Only his fellow snobs knew that he was of their number. For, owing to their inability to appreciate the intervening efforts of his imagination, they saw in close juxtaposition the social activities of Legrandin and their primary cause. At home, meanwhile, we had no longer any illusions as to Monsieur Legrandin and our relations with him had become much more distant. Mamma would be greatly delighted whenever she caught him red-handed in the sin, which he continued to call the unpardonable sin, of snobbery. As for my father, he found it difficult to take Legrandin's airs in so light, in so detached a spirit, and when there was some talk one year of sending me to spend the long summer holidays at Balbec with my grandmother, he said, I must most certainly tell Legrandin that you are going to Baalbek, to see whether he will offer you an introduction to his sister. He probably doesn't remember telling us that she lived within a mile of the place. My grandmother, who held that, when one went to the seaside, one ought to be on the beach from morning to night, to taste the salt breezes, and that one should not know anyone in the place, because calls and parties and excursions were so much time stolen from what belonged by rights, to the sea air, begged him on no account to speak to Legrandin of our plans, for already, in her mind's eye, she could see his sister, Madame de Combremer, alighting from her carriage at the door of our hotel, just as we were on the point of going out fishing, and obliging us to remain indoors all afternoon to entertain her. But Mamma laughed her fears to scorn, for she herself felt that the danger was not so threatening and that Legrandin would show no undue anxiety to make us acquainted with his sister. And, as it happened, there was no need for any of us to introduce the subject of Baalbek, for it was Legrandin himself who, without the least suspicion that we had ever had any intention of visiting those parts, walked into the trap uninvited one evening, when we met him strolling on the banks of the Vivonne. There are tints in the clouds this evening, violets and blues, which are very beautiful, are they not, my friend? He said to my father, especially a blue which is far more floral than atmospheric, a kinaria blue, which it is surprising to see in the sky. And that little pink cloud there, has it not just the tint of some flower, a carnation or hydrangea? Nowhere, perhaps, except on the shores of the English Channel, where Normandy merges into Brittany, 
have I been able to find such copious examples of what you might call a vegetable kingdom in the clouds. Down there, close to Baalbek, among all those places which are still so uncivilized, there is a little bay, charmingly quiet, where the sunsets of the Orge Valley, those red and gold sunsets, which all the same I am very far from despising, seem commonplace and insignificant, for in that moist and gentle atmosphere these heavenly flower-beds will break into blossom in a few moments, in the evenings, incomparably lovely, and often lasting for hours before they fade. Others shed their leaves at once, and then it is more beautiful still to see the skies strewn with the scattering of their innumerable petals, sulphurous yellow and rosy red. In that bay, which they call the Opal Bay, the golden sands appear more charming still from being fastened, like fair Andromeda, to those terrible rocks of the surrounding coast, to that funereal shore, famed for the number of its wrecks, where every winter many a brave vessel falls a victim to the perils of the sea. Baalbek, the oldest bone in the geological skeleton that underlies our soil, the true armor, the sea, the land's end, the accursed region which Anatole France, an enchanter whose works our young friend ought to read, has so well depicted beneath its eternal fogs, as though it were indeed the land of the Cimmerians in the Odyssey. Baalbek, yes, they are building hotels there now, superimposing them upon its ancient and charming soil, which they are powerless to alter. How delightful it is down there, to be able to step out at once into regions so primitive and so entrancing. Indeed. And do you know anyone at Baalbek? inquired my father. This young man is just going to spend a couple of months there with his grandmother, and my wife too, perhaps. The grandan, taken unawares by the question, at a moment when he was looking directly at my father, was unable to turn aside his gaze, and so concentrated it, with steadily increasing intensity, smiling mournfully the while, upon the eyes of his questioner with an air of friendliness and frankness, and of not being afraid to look him in the face, until he seemed to have penetrated my father's skull, as it had been a ball of glass, and to be seeing, at the moment, a long way beyond and behind it, a brightly coloured cloud, which provided him with a mental alibi, and would enable him to establish the theory that, just when he was being asked whether he knew anyone at Baalbek, he had been thinking of something else, and so had not heard the question. As a rule, these tactics make the questioner proceed to ask, Why? What are you thinking about? But my father, inquisitive, annoyed, and cruel, repeated, Have you friends, then, in that neighbourhood, that you know Baalbek so well? In a final and desperate effort, the smiling gaze of Le Grandin, struggled to the extreme limits of its tenderness, vagueness, candour, and distraction. Then feeling, no doubt, that there was nothing left for it now but to answer, he said to us, I have friends all the world over, wherever there are companies of trees, stricken but not defeated, which have come together to offer a common supplication, 
with pathetic obstinacy to an inclement sky which has no mercy upon them. That is not quite what I meant, interrupted my father, obstinate as a tree and merciless as the sky. I asked you, in case anything should happen to my mother-in-law, and she wanted to feel that she was not all alone down there, at the ends of the earth, whether you knew any of the people. There, as elsewhere, I know every one, and I know no one, replied Legrandin, who was by no means ready yet to surrender. Places I know well, people very slightly. But, down there, the places themselves seem to me just like people, rare and wonderful people, of a delicate quality, which would have been corrupted and ruined by the gift of life. Perhaps it is a castle which you encounter upon the cliff's edge, standing there by the roadside, where it has halted to contemplate its sorrows before an evening sky, still rosy, through which a golden moon is climbing, while the fishing boats, homeward bound, creasing the watered silk of the channel, hoist its pennant at their mastheads and carry its colours. Or perhaps it is a simple dwelling-house that stands alone, ugly, if anything, timid-seeming, but full of romance, hiding from every eye some imperishable secret of happiness and disenchantment. That land which knows not truth, he continued with Machiavellian subtlety, that land of infinite fiction makes bad reading for any boy, and is certainly not what I should choose or recommend for my young friend here, who was already so much inclined to melancholy, for a heart already predisposed to receive its impressions. Climates that breathe amorous secrets and futile regrets may agree with an old and disillusioned man like myself but they must always prove fatal to a temperament which is still unformed. Believe me, he went on with emphasis, the waters of that bay, more Breton than Norman, may exert a sedative influence, though even that is of questionable value, upon a heart which, like mine, is no longer unbroken, a heart for whose wounds there is no longer anything to compensate. But at your age, my boy, those waters are contraindicated. Good night to you, neighbours, he added, moving away from us, with that evasive abruptness to which we were accustomed, and then turning towards us, with a physicianly finger raised in warning, he resumed the consultation. No, Baalbeck, before you are fifty, he called out to me, and even then it must depend on the state of the heart. My father spoke to him of it again, as often as we met him, and tortured him with questions. But it was labour in vain. Like that scholarly swindler, who devoted to the fabrication of forged palimpsests, a wealth of skill and knowledge and industry, the hundredth part of which would have sufficed to establish him in a more lucrative, but an honourable occupation. Monsieur Legrandin, had we insisted further, would in the end have constructed a whole system of ethics, and a celestial geography of Lower Normandy, sooner than admit to us that, within a mile of Baalbek, his own sister was living in her own house, sooner than find himself obliged to offer us a letter of introduction, 
the prospect of which would never have inspired him with such terror, had he been absolutely certain, as, from his knowledge of my grandmother's character, he really ought to have been certain, that in no circumstances whatsoever would we have dreamed of making use of it. We used always to return from our walks in good time to pay Aunt Lenny a visit before dinner. In the first weeks of our Combray holidays, when the days ended early, we would still be able to see, as we turned into the Rue du Saint-Esprit, a reflection of the western sky from the windows of the house, and a band of purple at the foot of the Calvary, which was mirrored further on in the pond, a fiery glow which, accompanied often by a cold that burned and stung, would associate itself in my mind with the glow of the fire over which, at that very moment, was roasting the chicken that was to furnish me, in place of the poetic pleasure I had found in my walk, with the sensual pleasures of good feeding, warmth, and rest. But in summer, when we came back to the house, the sun would not have set, and while we were upstairs paying our visit to Aunt Lenny, its rays, sinking until they touched and lay along her window-sill, would there be caught and held by the large inner curtains and the bands which tied them back to the wall, and split and scattered and filtered, and then, at last, would fall upon and inlay with tiny flakes of gold the lemon-wood of her chest of drawers, illuminating the room in their passage with the same delicate, slanting, shadowed beams that fall among the boles of forest trees. But on some days, though very rarely, the chest of drawers would long since have shed its momentary adornments. There would no longer, as we turned into the Rue de Saint-Esprit, be any reflection from the western sky burning along the line of window-panes. The pond beneath the Calvary would have lost its fiery glow, sometimes indeed had changed already to an opalescent pallor, while a long ribbon of moonlight, bent and broken and broadened by every ripple upon the water's surface, would be lying across it from end to end. Then, as we drew near the house, we would make out a figure standing upon the doorstep, and Mamma would say to me, "'Good heavens! There is Francoise looking out for us! Your aunt must be anxious! That means we are late!' and without wasting time by stopping to take off our things, we would fly upstairs to my Aunt Leonie's room to reassure her, to prove to her, by our bodily presence, that all her gloomy imaginings were false, that, on the contrary, nothing had happened to us, but that we had gone the Gamont way, and, good Lord, when one took that walk, my aunt knew well enough that one could never say at what time one would be home. There, Francoise, my aunt would say, didn't I tell you that they must have gone the Camont way? Good gracious, they must be hungry, and your nice leg of mutton will be quite dried up now, after all the hours it's been waiting. What a time to come in! Well, and so you went the Camont way. But, Lenny, I supposed you knew. Mamma would answer, I thought that Francoise had seen us go out by the little gate through the kitchen garden. For there were, in the environs of Combray, two ways which we used to take for our walks, and so diametrically opposed that we would actually leave the house by a different door, 
according to the way we had chosen, the way towards Méséglise la Vineuse, which we called also Swan's Way, because, to get there, one had to pass along the boundary of Monsieur Swan's estate, and the Guermont Way. Of Méséglise la Vineuse, to tell the truth, I never knew anything more than the way there, and the strange people who would come over on Sundays to take the air in Combray, people whom, this time, neither my aunt nor any of us would know at all, and whom we would therefore assume to be people who must have come over from Méséglise. As for Guermont, I was to know it well enough one day, but that day had still to come, and, during the whole of my boyhood, if Méséglise was to me something as inaccessible as the horizon, which remained hidden from sight, however far one went, by the folds of a country which no longer bore the least resemblance to the country round Combray, Guermont, on the other hand, meant no more than the ultimate goal, ideal rather than real, of the Guermont way, a sort of abstract geographical term, like the North Pole or the Equator, and so to take the Guermont way, in order to get to Méséglise or vice versa, would have seemed to me as nonsensical a proceeding as to turn to the east in order to reach the west. Since my father used always to speak of the Méséglise way, as comprising the finest view of a plain that he knew anywhere, and of the Guermont way, as typical of river scenery, I had invested each of them, by conceiving them in this way, as two distinct entities, with that cohesion, that unity, which belongs only to the figments of the mind. The smallest detail of either of them appeared to me as a precious thing, which exhibited the special excellence of the whole, while, immediately beside them, in the first stages of our walk, before we had reached the sacred soil of one or the other, the purely material roads, at definite points on which they were set down as the ideal view over a plain, and the ideal scenery of a river, were no more worth the trouble of looking at them than, to a keen playgoer and lover of dramatic art, are the little streets which may happen to run past the walls of a theatre. But, above all, I set between them, far more distinctly than the mere distance in miles and yards and inches which separated one from the other, the distance that there was between the two parts of my brain in which I used to think of them, one of those distances of the mind which time serves only to lengthen, which separate things irremediably from one another, keeping them for ever upon different planes. And this distinction was rendered still more absolute, because the habit we had of never going both ways on the same day, or in the course of the same walk, but the Méséglise way, one time, and the Guermont way, another, shut them up, so to speak, far apart and unaware of each other's existence, in the sealed vessels, between which there could be no communication, of separate afternoons. When we had decided to go the Méséglise way, we would start, without undue haste, and even if the sky were clouded over, since the walk was not very long, and did not take us too far from home, as though we were not going anywhere in particular, 
by the front door of my aunt's house, which opened onto the Rue du Saint-Esprit. We would be greeted by the gunsmith. We would drop our letters into the box. We would tell Theodore, from Françoise as we passed, that she had run out of oil or coffee, and we would leave the town by the road which ran along the white fence of Monsieur Swann's park. Before reaching it, we would be met on our way by the scent of his lilac trees, come out to welcome strangers. Out of the fresh little green hearts of their foliage, the lilacs raised inquisitively over the fence of the park, their plumes of white or purple blossom, which glowed, even in the shade, with the sunlight in which they had been bathed. Some of them, half concealed by the little tiled house, called the Archer's Lodge, in which Swan's keeper lived, overtopped its gothic gable with their rosy minaret. The nymphs of spring would have seemed coarse and vulgar in comparison with these young Coris, who retained, in this French garden, the pure and vivid colouring of a Persian miniature. Despite my desire to throw my arms about their pliant forms and to draw down towards me the starry locks that crowned their fragrant heads, we would pass them by without stopping, for my parents had ceased to visit Tonsonville since Swan's marriage, and, so as not to appear to be looking into his park, we would, instead of taking the road which ran beside its boundary, and then climb straight up to the open fields, choose another way, which led in the same direction, but circuitously, and brought us out rather too far from home. One day, my grandfather said to my father, Don't you remember Swan's telling us yesterday that his wife and daughter had gone off to Reims, and that he was taking the opportunity of spending a day or two in Paris? We might go along by the park, since the ladies are not at home. That will make it a little shorter. We stopped for a moment by the fence. Lilac time was nearly over. Some of the trees still thrust aloft, in tall purple chandeliers, their tiny balls of blossom, but in many places among their foliage where, only a week before, they had still been breaking in waves of fragrant foam. These were now spent and shriveled and discoloured, a hollow scum, dry and scentless. My grandfather pointed out to my father in what respects the appearance of the place was still the same, and how far it had altered since the walk that he had taken with old Monsieur Swann, on the day of his wife's death, and he seized the opportunity to tell us, once again, the story of that walk. In front of us, a path bordered with nasturtiums rose in the full glare of the sun towards the house, but to our right the park stretched away into the distance, on level ground. Overshadowed by the tall trees which stood close around it, an ornamental water had been constructed by Swann's parents. But even in his most artificial creations, nature is the material upon which man has to work. Certain spots will persist in remaining surrounded by the vassals of their own especial sovereignty, and will raise their immemorial standards among all the laid-out scenery of a park, just as they would have done far from any human interference in a solitude which must everywhere return to engulf them, springing up out of the necessities of their exposed position, and superimposing itself upon the work of man's hands. And so it was that, 
at the foot of the path which led down to this artificial lake, there might be seen, in its two tiers woven of trailing forget-me-nots below, and of periwinkle flowers above, the natural, delicate blue garland which binds the luminous, shadowed brows of water-nymphs, while the iris, its swords sweeping every way in regal profusion, stretched out over agrimony and water-growing king-cups, the lilied sceptres, tattered glories of yellow and purple, of the kingdom of the lake. End of section 10